We were at a place in the story of David. This is uh, we've been in the this is this series called the Reign of David. But we started with the story of David, going through every single chapter of the story of David. Uh, if we could get a little bit more house light, so I can see the the, the beautiful people in the room, that'd be great. Um, we've been going through the story of David chapter by chapter, and we're coming to a place where David's son Absalom has started a rebellion, and we're we're coming to the chapter tonight where the rebellion. Um, actually ends. He's leading the rebellion against his father, King David. All of Israel has turned on David. If you remember, a quick recap, David has uh, brought together all the tribes of Israel in his younger days when he stepped into um, his role as a king, and it's been the greatest uh, reign of, uh, uh, ever, And uh, but all of a sudden, people have turned. They are following Absalom, and David and his men, about 600 or so, are in the wilderness. Um, Israel has turned uh, on David looking for a more fit king in their minds. And before we get into the, the, the text, I wanted to read Matthew seven fourteen. The gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. It's difficult, it's narrow, and only a few ever find it. All these people want this great kingdom... And in a moment, they switch loyalty in a snap based off of what they think a king is. And only 600 or so went the right way. And the reason I bring that up is because a wilderness season doesn't look like kingdom in the eyes of a man. But there are so many times the most appropriate place for the kingdom to reign is in fact in the wilderness. And for some reason in church, we preach against the wilderness Yet if we look through story by story in the Bible, in the wilderness is where everyone is shaped and formed and prepared for great things. So I say, God, if you want me in the wilderness, I want your kingdom and not man's. And if you've got some things to to work in me, I welcome it. Bring me into the wilderness. So so in, in seeking God, take the filter off of your view of what God should be and be willing to do whatever he wants and wherever he wants and go wherever he wants despite what you think you want. It's all about him, right? You've got an entire nation wanting young, beautiful Absalom and only 600 staying true to King David. David has arrived at a place called Mahinam and presented with all the nourishment they need for strength. God knew that at the end of this journey in the wilderness, they would need all the strength they need because the battle's coming. So we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, David now mustered the men who were with him and appointed generals and captains to lead them. Someone say generals and captains. He sent the troops out in three groups. Say three. Three groups, placing one group under Joab, one under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zariah, and one under Ittai, the man from Gath. The king told his troops, I'm going out with you. The first thing David does is he takes the men he had. He takes the men he had and he managed them and he placed each of them in three groups under captains and generals. Absalom has all of Israel. We're talking tens upon tens of thousands of men. We're going to find out the ones that he defeated, number 20,000, and that was not all of Israel. So you've got 20,000 against 600. Now, if I were David, I would be panicking a little bit. 
And the first thing that I would do is get on my knees and say, God, send some more. We need some more troops. Like, come on, where are the people? But notice David never gets on his knees and says, God, send more. All he does, and he says, God, you've given me 600, so instead of asking for more, I'm going to properly manage what I already have. So he splits the 600 into three groups under captains and generals. He didn't panic. He didn't look at what he didn't have. He took authority in what he did have. And I think the church has got to stop asking for more until we properly manage what we got. We want more finances, but we can't manage it properly. The, the church has shifted. And, I, and this is personal and this is church, but I know in the church, most churches pay more uh, salary to the pastor than they do putting it into the people. One staple at Relentless is we never allow the entire staff to be paid more than 35% of the entire budget. Because under my leadership... All the money we can is going to go toward ministry. In our personal lives, we say, God, give me more, but you can't manage what you have properly. You want a house, but you can't keep your current one clean. <laughs> you want favor, but you're late all the time. You want God to open doors, but you barely open the door of the church on Saturday nights. Ooh. Stop asking for more until we start to manage what we've got. We've all got spiritual gifts. Whether you know it or not, you've got gifts. Stop asking God to do big things until you start to walk into how can I start developing what I got. Being real, every single morning y'all should be here tomorrow night at 5 o'clock. If you want to figure out what you've got and how you want to work it. You want to know why people ain't getting healed in hospitals? Because there's people with healing giftings that don't know it. But we won't manage what we've got because we're all of, we, we are so consumed with self that we're not walking in the great commission of go and make disciples. We're, we're not reaching out to the lost. We're not, we're not going to the sick. I mean, what if there's a day in Savannah where the unemployment was in the hospitals because there was no one sick to go in? <laughs> and, of course, we still pay the doctors because they're great. But what if there's a day when there is no need? You know, what, 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 if, what if there's a day when we're actually seeing the Garden of Eden on earth right now? Heaven on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. But we're too busy saying God add instead of managing what we have. Psalm 910, those who know your name trust in you. For, for you, O Lord, do not abandon those who search you. David was finally back in the flow of seeking God. He had missed it for a while. He was seeking lust of the flesh and he saw that woman on the rooftop and he made some mistakes but he's back in seeking God. And I think one thing we do wrong in the church is we don't allow people to get back in as quick as they can. We put a human reasoning as to how long it takes for you to get back in your position. All David had to do was seek God, and he went from sleeping with a woman on a rooftop still, and he's about to restore the kingdom all because of one thing, he sought God. And we, we, we put too much of human reasoning into just, let's seek him. That's where the victory is. It's not in man-made systems. I mean, systems are not bad. 
We have systems in this church. We have systems in, in, in the world and in the, in the job place. There's nothing wrong with systems, but the system shouldn't place the divine glory of God. It's a partnership with what he wants to do. We don't need to seek more things. We don't need to seek solution. We just need to seek God and let him provide it as he pleases. We seek him and he will not abandon us. We seek him, we get solution. Not seek solution and put it before God. See, that's what we do. God, what do I need to do? And we get an idea and we say, God, is this what you want? No, let's seek God and let him speak. Because believe it or not, he's pretty good at it. And David is in such a degree of seeking that he's become very willing and humble. Willing and humble. Willing and humble. It seems like in the church we've got humble people who aren't willing and we've got willing people who ain't humble. <laughs> well, he's both. Look at this in verse 3. But as men objected strongly, you must not go, they urged. Remember, 600 men coming against 20,000. They, they don't want David dying. And he's like, you, you must not go, they urge. If we have to turn and run, even if half of us die, it's going to make no difference to Absalom's troops. They're only looking for you. You're worth 10,000 of us, and it's better that you stay here in the town and send help if we need it. Well, if you think that's the best plan, I'll do it, the king answered. So he stood alongside the gate of the town, and as all the troops marched out in groups of hundreds and of thousands. Hmm. The last time David didn't go into battle, he regretted it. Remember last time he didn't go into battle? That's when he got placed on the roof of Bathsheba. So you've got this willing king now who's learned from his mistakes. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going in this battle. I'm willing. But in his humility with the men that he trusted who went into the wilderness with him, he was not such in a position of kingship that he would not take a word from his trusted men and troops. And I think in seeking, we've got to become people who are willing to do whatever God wants, but also humble to the fact that you ain't the only one that God has working. <laughs> In his seeking, he is seeking the advice of good and loyal people. A great leader listens to wise advice. In fact, Proverbs 24, 6 says this, So don't go to war without wise guidance. Victory depends on having many advisors. And I think a lot of us are stuck in ruts because we got one person we always turn to. Which is crazy to me because it's like, if you're in a place where you keep getting to a, a stop, you keep going to the same person. It says there's advice, that victory depends on having many advisors. The church has almost become this thing where it's like you need to submit to your pastor and that's all you need to talk to. That's the dumbest thing you could do because guess what? I'm a, I'm a flipping man. <laughs> Sometimes I get it wrong. It doesn't say there's power in your pastor. It says there's power in the body of believers. Believe it or not, there are people in this room who can give you much better advice than me. And on the contrary, I can give much better advice than some people in this room. <laughs> but we've got to surround ourselves with people who we can trust and build that relationship 
so that the counselor advisors is not like you have this board that you text on, 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 your, on, your, on your backup plan. It's you are surrounded by many because you have invested into the family of God. I can say honestly at prayer nights on Mondays, if anyone had a need, everyone could trust the advice of anyone that comes to prayer. It's just such a good spirit of unity in the house. That's where we've got to get as a church. Many advisors, we are all seeking God together. One of the greatest benefits of being tied to a house of God is many advisors, and your victory depends on it. And I wonder, just as how these troops loved David, they loved him so much that they were ready for battle with their king, they were ready to go on the front line, how many of us are willing to follow through even when we can't see God? Because these soldiers didn't have a guarantee it says that, remember it says, um, he stood alongside the gate as the troops marched out in hundreds of thousands. They're getting ready for a big battle. And it's really hard to believe sometimes that God's going to come through because you look at every all of your circumstances. But how many of us are willing to follow through with advice that doesn't seem good based off circumstance? Because sometimes we're told to do one thing that doesn't make sense for the season when God says, well, I've gone like, every step before you. And if you will follow this step, I assure you it works out to where your destination is. See, we limit God to step one and step two, and God says, I've seen step 99. And I know the best strategy to get there. Will you follow me? Revelation 17, 14 says this, they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Those who are with him will also, those who are with him, those who are with him will also conquer them, and they are called chosen and faithful. I don't know about you, but I want to be one of these guys, defeating all things evil and conquering. But it says they have two traits they're chosen and faithful. We love the chosen part. We love that I'm, I'm a child of God and I'm chosen. But remember, the Bible qualifies the chosen as those who are able to walk through a narrow gate. So will you walk into your identity as chosen by leaving everything you can behind if it, if it means the only way I can get through this gate is leaving all this baggage, even if the baggage is good? That's why Jesus says things, be willing to leave even your mother and father in pursuit of me. Are you willing to lose whatever in pursuit of me? Now, don't go home breaking relationships with mom and dad. That's not what I'm saying. It's the willingness of the heart and the posture of your mind and your soul. Am I willing to do whatever it takes to follow God? Chosen and faithful. Are you faithful even when it seems like a bad idea? Will you follow through in every single battle he calls you to walk into even when it seems like you're ill-equipped? Will you follow through in the conversation with the person that you don't really want to have the conversation with? Will you follow through in submitting to someone who you don't deem worthy to submit to? So in verse 5, in 2 Samuel 18, it says, The king gave this command to Joab, Abishai, and Atai, For my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. And all the troops heard the king give this order to his commanders. David made it clear. Deal gently with my son. Don't kill him. Don't mistreat him. We're going to conquer this rebellion, but do not kill my son. Deal gently with him. And I think we as people of God 
need to start listening to the command of, of our, king, God, our King Jesus and dealing gently with sinners instead of castrating them before people. Because the fact of the matter is, the church knows all the sins, and we almost put ourselves on this pedestal of we're better than you because we're not in your stuff. Well, you just, God calls pride evil. We've got to get to a place where we are willing to show a, I'm, I'm just going to share the word that we got a couple weeks ago from Damon Thompson. If you've never listened to him, if, if, you, if, you're, if you listen to podcasts, go online and listen. If you don't listen to podcasts, get saved and download podcasts and, and do it. But he, we all went and he was talking about the scripture that says his kindness leads to what? Repentance. Not the guilt of your sin. What is repentance? It's, it's, it's moving in from one direction to another, changing directions. But it starts with, why would I leave my sin? I've got to start looking at things differently. Because people who have an alcohol problem love drinking. Because it makes you feel good. So in order for them to turn from it, you don't need Christians saying, you're a bad person and you're an alcoholic. They need to have a different perspective of why would they give up this thing that is so dear to them. So the Father says, let my kindness lead them to view me in such a way that they will turn from the sin that they love. But what we've done in the church is, well, you need to get right. And you're not a good person. And this and this and this. And God's like, that's kindness? And one thing he said that was so powerful, you know why people backslide in the church? Because they backslide from feeling guilty, not backslide from kindness. <laughs> Romans 5.8, but Christ proved God's compassionate love for us by dying in our place while we were still lost and ungodly. So why don't we deal with evil people the way God, the way God dealt with us? They're lost and ungodly. Deal gently. Is it possible to hate the sin and not the sinner? Is it possible to extend love? Can I be really real and bold and non-religious? I, I, I want homosexuals to come in this church even before they give up the lifestyle. I want drunks to come in this church smelling like alcohol. Because if we're seeking the presence, what they're dealing with cannot stay on them. But are we willing to embrace them in the process of it falling off? Are we willing to hold each other up in accountability and walk into a presence that is so thick that sin can't stand? If we would really become seekers together, th th this is why part of the vision of this house is no longer to build a megachurch. We're trying to build smaller houses that are so intimate and personal that we are all on the same page as seeking God that when you walk in here, you literally have trouble breathing if you have anything going on besides giving him honor and glory. That, that's my vision. Like, what if we could get there? How do we get there? Seeking. Seeking God. King David is like, hey, y'all, I know my son wants to kill me. And I know I'm in the wilderness. But I'm the one seen it on that throne. 
And I command that you deal with him gently, no matter what he's trying to do. You want to know how you can get to that place in your life where you can deal with people gently even though they deserve the worst? Is you start to understand that you are seated higher than them. You are seated in heavenly places. So I no longer look at you from a human perspective, says the word. Because a human perspective is not taking their seat in higher places. I can look at you as a human and say, you're this and you're that and you offend me. and this. Or I can take my seat in higher places. I'm scared of heights, so this is... <laughs> and I can take a different view. And, and You know what? You're not as big as I thought you were. And I extend grace to you because you being down there cannot affect me up here. Do you, do, I'm not jumping down. Do you, do you take your seat in higher places? When someone offends you, are you looking at them from down there or up here? <laughs> is, this, is this okay? Is it good? Ephesians 2.6, he raised us up with Christ, the exalted one, and we ascended with him. Not we're going to, but we did. We ascended with him into the glorious perfection and authority of the heavenly realm. For now, we are co-seated as one with Christ. You don't get seated with him once you die. You die when you said, Jesus, here I am. You died to the old self and are reborn into a new creation and now you are co-seated with Christ. And in that co-seated place, he says, now that you're co-seated with me, reign on the earth until I bring you here. You're co-seated now so that you can reign now. The, the, the whole perspective of I can't wait to get with God one day, you idiot, he's with you now. <laughs> I get sick and tired of hearing that. Well, one day you'll be with God. I don't know where you at, but I'm with God when I go to the coffee shop. I'm with God when I watch TV, and sometimes I get embarrassed that God's with me, and then I have to repent, and then I got to get with it. But God is with I am co-seated. I'm with him. So I'm going to seek him in everything I do so I can walk in my heavenly authority as a co-seated heir of the inheritance that he bought back for me on the cross. <laughs> so we rule in love and compassion like our king bestowed to us from a higher position, you bestow that to people because you take your seat in a higher position. Well, you don't know what they did to me. It doesn't matter. You're higher. And it's not a prideful look at me, I'm higher, because King Jesus got down on his feet and washed feet. So you know what you do as a co-seated heir of God? You wash the feet of the people who you don't like. Can I remind you that like, 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 like he washed the feet of disciples that would turn on him? Well, you just don't know what they did to me. They stabbed me in the back, washed their feet. You're not seated where they can stab you. You're above. If they're affecting you, that's your issue, not theirs. <clears throat> that's where David's at. My son has taken my kingdom. He has killed my other son. He is totally against me but don't harm him, thank you. Deal with him gently. 
In verse 6 it says, So the battle began in the forest of Ephraim, and the Israelite troops were beaten back by David's men. There was a great slaughter that day, and 20,000 men laid down their lives. Now here's where it gets good. The battle raged all across the countryside, and more men died because of the forest than were killed by the sword. How is it that such a small army defeated troops of 20,000? Well, one, you've got David's experience and knowledge as a great leader. Every battle he's won, he's, I mean, every battle he's gone to, he's won. He knows how to mobilize. He know, but how did he was seeking God and was led into a seemingly backward position, the wilderness. And in seeking God, he goes to a wilderness that looks like it's three steps back, and that wilderness took out more people than his army did. You know, what the, you know why? In that wilderness, what they didn't see, scholars talk about what it looked. There was caves, there was pits, there were swamps. They didn't, know what was, they didn't know what was coming. And yet, you don't embrace wilderness seasons? You ever get in this place where you're fighting the same demon over and over and over? Maybe you should go into the wilderness and let the wilderness take care of what you can't fight. Because <laughs> we got the sword of the Spirit, right? Well, we have the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and we have God. He said, wherever I lead you, I've got a plan, and I'll make it work for your good. What you can't take, you, you be faithful in the sword, and I'll make sure that the environment that I bring you the sword into is perfect for your victory. This is good. In seeking God, he'll cause you to divide your battles in such a way where it's by your obedience and his divine power with which you don't know and you can't see. He will lead you to where your battles are in the territory best suited for your weakness. What was the weakness? They were outnumbered. So he says, okay, I'll take care of that weakness. Let's, let's bring it into a place where before they even get to you, I'll take care of them. That, that's why weakness is advantage. Where you're weak, I am strong. He says, I know your weakness, and I'll make sure I bring you into environments where I compensate for what you don't have. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, each time he said, my grace is all you need, my power works best. In weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. This is right after Paul was talking about the thorn in his side. His power works best in your weakness. And yet for some reason we don't fight battles because we say we're weak. It's not a bad thing to see where you're weak. See, what we have come to learn is weakness is bad, so we've got to get stronger in our weak places. But God says, well, I'm actually stronger in those weak places, so it's not that you have to get stronger, it's that you've got to submit them. And that is getting stronger. There are certain things that no matter how hard I try, I fail at. Just being transparent. I know y'all perfect, but... So in, in order for me to stay strong, I have to continually submit it. 
And when I continually submit it, he's able to take me away from things I can't say no to. I know know, I'm a preacher and you think I'm perfect, but just being real. I'm strong in your weak places. Let me lead you to where I need to lead you and take care of what you can't take care of, and sometimes you won't see it. You think they saw every soldier caught up in a swamp or fall into a pit? No. Can you imagine David with like just a few hundred, maybe closer to a thousand at this point people, and all of a sudden 20,000 die, and he's like, all right, because he's seeking God. (laughs) Your weak places are actually your advantage. Look at verse 9. During the battle... Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule, but as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree. His mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. Now, I remember a couple chapters ago, it describes Absalom. One of his greatest features and why so many people loved him because he was beautiful and he had a ton of beautiful hair. It says when they cut it off, it was five pounds of hair. I'm thankful God did not give that to me. I am perfect in the Holy Ghost. (laughs) He took pride in his hair. And the very thing he took pride in was the very thing that hung him out to dry. (laughs) He was known for his looks and his luxurious hair. His own glory left him dangling and vulnerable. Some of us need to cut off your pride before it hangs you out to dry. Because when you're full of pride, you may be led by God to a forest where you'll have to deal with it. Absalom was chasing David through a forest, and the wilderness dealt with Absalom's pride. He couldn't even make it on his horse. He got tangled up. Wilderness is for victory and humility. Because he hates pride. Proverbs 8, 8, 13, all who fear the Lord will hate evil, therefore I hate pride and arrogance, corruption and perverse speech. Seek God, he may call you to cut off your glory so that he gains the glory. (laughs) I had to learn that. I remember when I was a freshman in college, I thought I was like the best piano player ever. I went and tried out for the Baptist Student Union's praise team, and I didn't make it. And I, that year, I was not a good Christian boy. I got mad. I rebelled. I did everything else. I, sorry, Mom, that you're hearing this for the first time, but that's, that's how my freshman year of college was. But in that time, when I wasn't acting out, I was practicing. And the next year, on a whim, I went back into that. And the only thing I can tell you is is the reason why I made that audition and grew in my musicianship, because for some reason in that time of rebellion, God never opened up a door for me to play in a bar. He never opened up a door for me to play anywhere. It was only when he got glory that he allowed me to excel in my gift. And I think sometimes we got to be willing to cut off the hair and say, you know what, this is only for you. This is no longer about me. This is no longer about me. I mean, think about Absalom. He depended on his looks and his hair to gain people's affections. 
when truthfully he was already positioned to become a king because he was King David's son. And he's going to lose it because he took pride in what he had rather than surrendering, surrendering it. And I wonder how many of us are positioned for greatness in the kingdom of God and we forfeit it because we won't cut off our pride. So in verse 10, one of David's men saw what had happened and told Joab, I saw Absalom dangling from a great tree. What? Joab demanded. You saw him there and you didn't kill him? Now what did King David say? Don't, don't touch my son. He said, I would have rewarded you with ten pieces of silver and a hero's belt. I would not kill the king's son for even a thousand pieces of silver the man replied to Joab, we all heard the king say to you in Abishai and Atai, my, for my sake, please spare young Absalom. Joab says, I would have given you money and a promotion. The hero's belt was the chief prize of what a soldier wore back in those days. It was highly wanted, highly, it was something that everyone wanted. And the man, the man said, I'm not going to betray my king for anything you've got. I'm not going to betray my king for riches. I'm not going to betray him for a promotion. True seekers are trying to remove themselves from betraying loyalty to a king. And I wonder how many of us, you're either going to be in two places. You're finding ways to die to yourself, or you're trying to find ways to live for yourself. Dying to self. Joab, I don't care how much money you give me, and I don't care how many promotions you give me, my loyalty is to my king. Living for self, he would have said, Joab, thank you for the promotion. I'll take care of it. How much are you willing to say no to of what your eyes look like gain to be loyal to, to the king who says this life is not going to be easy. It's going to require some sacrifice. People are going to hate you. Are you willing to give it up for me? But how, do you, how many of us betray the king for earthly relationships? When there's church, family, that says the relationship you want outside of that house, you can get in this one. It's the same thing as what Absalom's doing. He had permission to become a king, but instead, he depended on his looks and his hair. We have permission to be in the most intimate relationships that people strive for, but we don't sow or invest anything besides come hear a word on a Saturday night. Verse 13, if I had betrayed the king by killing his son, the king would certainly find out who did it. You yourself would be the first to abandon me. He says, I'm not putting my trust in you. I'm putting my trust in my king. How many of us are willing to put our trust in the king? King Jesus. <laughs> I submit everything I've got and everything I depend on, and I'm going after your way. Revelation 12.10 says, I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, it has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Let me tell you how good our king is. Satan throws accusations to God about you every day in the courts of heaven. See, here again, this goes back to people hating me for saying this, but I really don't care. We have this view of heaven and hell, but it says Satan is in, the, is in heaven accusing us. 
Because you can be separated from heaven and still see the Father according to the Scripture. He's accusing God. He's accusing us day and night. Did you see what they did? Did you see how they, how they, did you see how they took the fruit? Did you see how they, they went with me, God? You're so great. They give me loyalty. He, the, the Satan, Lucifer, he accuses us day and night before God. And I want to read Proverbs 18.24. There are friends who destroy each other, but real friends stick closer than a brother. And God and we are called a friend of God. God says, you can accuse them all you want, but I'm sticking with them. You can bring whatever case you want, Lucifer. But remember, your position is below me. I'm seated above you. You are cast out of my courts. And no matter what you say and no matter how legitimate it is, I'm not giving up on them. I'm not leaving them. I'm not going to forsake them. You accuse all you want. I love my sons and daughters. So in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 18, enough of this nonsense, Joab said. And then he took three daggers and he plunged them into Absalom's heart as he dangled, still alive, in the great tree. Ten of Joab's young armor bearers then surrounded Absalom and killed him. Then Joab blew the ram's horn. His men returned from chasing the army of Israel. They threw Absalom's body into a deep pit in the forest, piled a great heap of stones over it, and all of Israel fled to their homes. Why did Joab disobey David? Because in his mind, he was doing what was best for his king. He was taking care of the one who was trying to kill his king, and in his mind, it was good. But even when... The, but the father didn't want to kill the son, no matter what he did. Even when the son of God, Jesus, was crucified on the cross, Scripture says it was black and there was no light from, from the sun for three hours because Jesus had to be crucified. That doesn't mean the father necessarily wanted it, but it had to be done. He's such a good father. And the only qualification that he gives us is seek him. Just, just, just seek me. Just seek me. You get accused day and night, I'm with you. I'll bless you. I'll move you forward. You're not perfect. I've got you. But seek me. If you are still entangled, you have to wonder, what are you tangled up in? because it's hanging you out to be vulnerable. Even though Joab may have done what was best for David, his reasoning did never can outweigh the command of a king. And when our king tells us don't take revenge on people, stop trying to reason with it. He knows the better thing. And I want to read verse 15 again because I think it's significant. After the three daggers were put in Absalom's chest area, it says that 10 of Joab's young armor bearers surrounded Absalom and killed him. Remember how many concubines David's wives Absalom slept with? Guess how many? You reap what you... Hmm. 
That's why everything you sow needs to be into the will of God and not the will of self. Because you'll reap it, but Absalom reaped it for his death. I don't know about you, but I want to make sure every seed I sow is in good soil of the Father. And as soon as it happened, all of Israel, King David's people, as soon as Absalom got killed, they went back home. They went back to Israel. In verse 18, during his lifetime, Absalom had built a monument to himself in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to carry on my name. He named the monument after himself and it's known as Absalom's monument to this day. I think we spend too much time building monuments to self instead of to the glory of God. Why did he build a monument to himself? It says because he had no son to carry his name. But you know back in chapter 14 it says that Absalom had three sons. In other words, they died before he did. Let me tell you what that means. True fathers are more concerned with sons than self. But Absalom wasn't concerned with his sons coming up. The only thing he was concerned with was I'm taking my father's throne. And I think that we as a people of God if we don't start focusing on the relationships of brothers and sisters and raising up sons and daughters in the faith, we can build a monument called a church, but it won't stand because we built it on one person rather than the family of God. There's coming a day where I'm not going to be the preacher in the pulpit every week intentionally. I think I have a great gift of teaching, but there are people in this room who got it too. And I'm more concerned with raising up sons that can do what I do rather than building a monument for what I did. That's where we're going as a church. We are going to a place where nothing is built on one person. Because just being real, if I got in a car wreck tonight, I'm not so sure where relentless would be. We've got to get to a place where my presence or my absence doesn't affect the move of God. Y'all want to go there with me? Yeah. We got to, we got to, but we got, we got to seek Him. We've got to I, just being transparent. I have dealt with so much pride in my life. The first few years of relentless, maybe even up to last year, it was my way or the highway, and I'll ask for your opinion, but I really won't ever take it. And I can tell you, I have sacrifice that at the throne of Jesus because I have weak places and you have strong places and the Bible says that the body is fitted together I'm not above you because I'm a pastor I'm with you and I have a specific gifting what, what if we walked into a day where we were so humble to each other that there was so much word coming forth that the idea of a preacher falls away. Oh, we can't do that because this is church and you've got to have a preacher. 
Like the upper room was a room where they got together and saw God and the glory fell and miracles happened. I kind of want that more than just come and hear me talk. I'd rather have a house built on when we gather together. There's so much strength when we go out. When we see people hurting, we just say, hey, uh, get up, you're healed. Instead of making church a self-help to say, Pastor Kyle, help me get through my week. No, 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 that's, that's you and God's deal. He supplies your every need, not Pastor Kyle. He supplies it. The saints, the sons and daughters of God, those who with governing authority come together and say, what is our assignment as a house? For the building of the saints. To go out and get non-believers, to disciple believers. Not to build a church where believers get to praise God about the fact that they praise God. <laughs> it's okay to laugh. But that's what we do, right? We get together for these big venues and, oh, King Jesus, yay, let's go have a drink. <laughs> King Jesus, yay, yeah, yeah. No, I, I can't, I can't, I can't tithe. King Jesus, yeah, yeah, I, I've, got, I've got too much on my plate to serve. King Jesus, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't have time to, to come pray for you because I'm not a good prayer. Like Moses was a stutterer and he led people out of Egypt. And his job was to speak on behalf of the people because in his weakness. <laughs> All right, get back on topic. Okay. <laughs> Verse 19, then Zadok's son, I, Ahimaaz <laughs> said, let me run to the king with the good news that the Lord has rescued him from his enemies. No, Joab told him, it wouldn't be good news to the king that the son's dead. You can be my messenger another time, but not today. Then Joab said to a man from Ethiopia, go tell the king what you've seen. The man bowed and ran off, but Ahimaaz continued to plead with Joab. Whatever happens, please let me go too. Why should you go, my son, Joab replied. There will be no reward for your news. Yes, but let me go anyways, he begged. Joab finally said, all right, go ahead. So Ahimaaz took the less demanding route by way of the plain and ran to Mahinam ahead of the Ethiopian. The less demanding route. Hmm. When, while David was sitting between the inner and the outer gates of the town, the watchman climbed to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked, he saw a lone man running toward them, and he shouted the news down to David, and the king replied, If he's alone, he's got news. As the messenger came closer, the watchman saw another man running toward them, and he shouted down, Here comes another one, the king replied, Well, he also will have news. The first man runs like I am, a son of Zadok, the watchman said. He's a good man and comes with good news, the king replied. Why is it that Ahimaaz outran the Ethiopian? He thought he had such good news that he ran a less demanding route that got him there quicker. Hebrews 12.1 Since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up and run with endurance the race God has set before us. The race God has set is less demanding, not meaning it won't be hard, meaning it will not cause us to grow tired and weary because the news we've got is more good than bad. It's as I run, I have such good news, I don't care how much I'm running, I'm more concerned with stripping off stuff so I can run faster because he saved me, he redeemed me, he 
healed me. He delivered me. I've got good news and I cannot stop running. Here it is. I've had a long week, Kyle. Do you realize what you're carrying? The Spirit of God's in you. My God don't grow tired. And I know all about tired. Anyone that breaks bread with me knows that if we go out to eat in church, I start, I start falling asleep at 9 o'clock. I know all about being tired. Some of y'all yawning down at 7.30. <laughs> I know all about being tired. I'm not talking about exhaustion. I'm, I'm talking about never giving up. Willing to, willing to go wherever and however. Verse 27 Again, the first man runs like, I have my son is addict. The watchman said, he's a good man and comes with good news. I wonder, what does your run look like? They could tell by the way he ran, he had good news. How you running? Because if you look depressed and down all the time, no one wants that news. And in the presence of God, those things cannot stand. So I speak to the depressed and those who have anxiety and those who think they're failures, get into the presence and seek him because in his presence, that stuff can't stand. It'll strip off of you. And you need to know something. You're good and you're perfect in the eyes of the Father. Verse 28. <clears throat> I'm getting to the end. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, everything is all right. He bowed before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise to the Lord your God, who has handed over the rebels who dared to stand against my Lord the king. Now, I want you to think for a minute. He's telling them that the enemy's been defeated. The war's over. And King David doesn't say, Amen. He says, What about my son? What, what about young Absalom, the king demanded? Is he all right? Ahimaaz replied, well, when, when Joab told me to come, there was a lot of commotion, but I didn't know what was happening. Wait here, the king told him. So Ahimaaz stepped aside, and the man from Ethiopia arrived, and he said, I've got good news for you, the Lord, or for my Lord, the king. Today the Lord has rescued you from all those who rebelled against you. What about my young son, Absalom, the king? What about my son? Is he all right? And the Ethiopian replied, may all of your enemies, my Lord, the king, both now and in the future, share the fate of that young man. Look at David. The rebellion's over. The battle's over. And all David cares about is, where is my son? It's such a beautiful picture of the Father's love for us. Because in the end of it, it's not so much about who won the battle, because Spoiler alert, God knows who won. He did. He just wants to know, where, where's my sons and daughters? Where, where, where are you? I know we're fighting battles and the, and the battle's over because like, I sacrificed my son and he died for you. And the battles, but where, are my sons, where are my sons and daughters? Where am I, Jesus, God, I believe in you. Okay, where's my son and daughter? Where, where's my son and daughter? Verse 33, the king was overcome with emotion and he went up to the room over the gateway and burst into tears. And as he went, he cried, oh, my son Absalom, 
my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. His son is setting out to murder him. And he'd rather sacrifice himself than see his son. We were trying to kill God out. And he says, as much as I don't want to, I'm giving you my only son. There's a beautiful verse in John 3 that says it better than I could ever say it. In verse 16, for this is how much God loved the world. He gave his one and only unique son as a gift. So now everyone who believes in him will never perish but experience everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to judge and condemn, but to be its savior and rescue it. The father loves you so much and he wanted his sons and daughters back so much that he said, I've got to follow my own law. And my own law says, I've got to sow a seed of my only son so that out of the ground would come many sons. He loves you that much. And if my father loved me that much to sow his only son just to get me, I'll cut off my hair. I'll give up the drink. I'll give up my pride. I'll give up everything I want. I will give, I, I will sack. God, I'm yours. And you know how you start that journey? Seeking. There is victory in seeking. His ways never fail. His mercy is always available. And all you got to do is seek him. Not measure up. Not prove yourself. Just seek him. So I say we start finding victory in seeking. Not victory in trying to keep a perfect score or a perfect record, just, just seeking. Because again, David didn't try to go back and right his wrong with Bathsheba. He saw God. He repented. And the son that David and Bathsheba had would be the one that takes the throne. You know what his name is? Solomon. There's a book in the Bible about him. He was the son of the woman that caused him to fall. You know why God blessed Solomon? Because David said, I'm seeking. I'm surrendering. I'm all about you, Father. It's incredible, the love of David. They tried to curse me. Absalom tried to kill me. He wanted to take away my kingdom, but I would have died in his place in a, in a moment. So with that knowledge and how great our God is that he would send his only so that we could become his, I'm no longer looking for victory in my talents. I'm no longer looking for victory in what I can do or what I can't do. I just want victory in seeking. So church, can we become seekers? Amen.
Amen.